Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Scott here. May brings thoughts of warmer weather, making getting outside much more enjoyable. Evening twilight lingers well beyond dinner time, so with those thoughts in mind, I head out and take a look at what the skies of May have to offer. Mercury and Venus may be difficult to spot in early May. Mercury in particular is making a brief visit to the western skies after sunset. The moon will lie just south of it on the night of the 13th, which can help, though at 9 in the evening it still may be a challenge. Its greatest angle east of the sun, called greatest eastern elongation, is on May 17th, after which it will be setting sooner and sooner after sunset, hiding in the glare of evening twilight. Venus is closer to the western horizon in early twilight, but it may be a bit easier to see as the month rolls on. It will become the dominant planet as the year continues, as it is not going to reach its eastern elongation until the end of October of this year. For now, a clear western horizon may make it visible. Mars can be glimpsed in the western sky. It can be found on the lower portion of the constellation Gemini the Twins. If you can spot Betelgeuse in the setting Orion, look about halfway between it and the near-twin stars Castor and Pollux, the stars marking the heads of the twins. The brightest point of light somewhat along that line should be Mars. Mars has played host to orbiting spacecraft, landing spacecraft, and roving spacecraft. In the news recently, you may have heard it now plays host to a hovering spacecraft, a helicopter of sorts, that is controlled by pre-stored computer code. Mars is not lonely. As darkness comes, some of the constellation companions I have mentioned in recent tours of the evening skies are setting with it. One might barely catch a glimpse of some of the stars of Orion near the western horizon, perhaps Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, marking the watchful eye of the big dog, Canis Major. So with old companions fading over the horizon, A scan of the skies reveals some new ones, some of which are not too difficult to imagine because they match their namesakes. Others may be simple in pattern, but perhaps harder to see as that after which it is named. High overhead is the constellation Leo the Lion. Leo can be fairly easy to recognize. Its brightest star, Regulus, is near the top of the sky as darkness comes. North of Regulus, one might notice a curve of stars. Along with Regulus, this might look like a sickle, or maybe a backwards question mark. This pattern marks the head and chest of Leo. East of here is a triangle of stars, sort of a right triangle. This would be the hindquarters of the lion. Leo is sometimes depicted laying down in the sky. As such, a star or two west of Regulus could represent his front paws extending in front of Leo, and a dim few underneath the right triangle-shaped hindquarters may be his back claws. Off to the southeast of Leo are two bright stars. The more southern of the two is Spica. It is the brightest star in Virgo the Maiden. 
A bit north of Spica, under less light-polluted skies, one can see a V-shaped pattern of stars. If you add Spica, it becomes more like a letter Y. This would be the upper torso of Virgo, while the lower torso is a bit south and east of Spica. Virgo may best be found using a star map, perhaps even one of those free apps one can get for one's smartphone. The more northerly bright star in the southeastern sky is Arcturus. It is much higher above the eastern horizon. The constellation that it belongs to is not too hard to see. Tying it to its namesake may take a bit more imagination. The constellation is Boötes, the herdsman. Boötes is lying on its side in the eastern sky and is shaped much like a four-sided paper kite. Starting with Arcturus and moving to the left, one might notice two stars of about the same brightness, then two more a bit broader, culminating in a single star above and about halfway between these last two. This upper star is his head. The rest form his torso. But a kite is far easier to see. Now that we are facing the northeast, a familiar pattern is found here near Bootes, the figure of the Big Dipper. During much of the winter and early spring, the Dipper has been located much closer to the horizon. But now that we are in a late spring, it is positioned much easier to find. I have pointed out in past broadcasts how the Dipper is useful for finding other constellations, including three I've already mentioned. The handle of the Big Dipper is curved or arc-shaped. So following that arc, one reaches Arcturus in Bootes. That is, one arcs to Arcturus. Continuing on, one speeds to Spica, the bright star in Virgo. So if there were doubts about finding these two stars, this would be a double check. The back two stars in the bowl of the Big Dipper can point to a star as well. Traveling southward along that line, one comes to Regulus, the bright star in Leo the Lion. One might even imagine swinging the dipper down on the head of Leo by using the handle of the Big Dipper. Again, a good way to check that the correct area and pattern of stars has been found. Finally, the best known alignment of stars within those that make up the bowl of the Big Dipper is the alignment of the front two stars. A line from the bottom front star to the top front star and extended roughly five to six times that spacing leads to Polaris, the North Star. Polaris is visible throughout the year, always at the same height from one's location, always pointing the direction north. Two more stars extending back in the general direction of the Big Dipper mark the handle of the Little Dipper, with a small box of stars marking its bowl, highlighted by two brighter stars marking the front of that bowl. Dark skies unhindered by light pollution are needed to find most of these, so the stars of the Little Dipper can be a test of just how light-polluted one's skies really are. Of course, as I have mentioned in other broadcasts, the Big and Little Dippers are really part of Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, respectively, or the Big and Little Bears. A bit more imagination, dark skies, and a good star map may be necessary to see these figures. So, concentrating on finding the Dippers first is that first step. Early May plays hosts to a meteor shire known as the Ada Aquarius. It is so named because the point from which the meteors seem to stream is located near that star. Though broad in nature, producing meteors over a period from about April 19th to May 28th, its peak is expected the night of May 4th and early morning hours of May 5th. But what makes the shower more interesting is that the meteors are material from the famous comet, Comet Halley. 
We actually pass through the orbit of Comet Halley twice a year, so this is the first of those passages. Sweeping up the material left behind by past visits, one might be treated to more than a few shooting stars, perhaps 10 to 30 an hour near peak activity. Thicker portions of the stream may even produce a burst of activity averaging about 50 meteors per hour. As with all meteor showers, dedication and early morning rising may be necessary to see the most. We are more directly pointed into the comet's path a couple of hours before dawn's light fades the stars as well as the shooting stars. This year, a waning gibbous moon rises about 4 in the morning. As a bonus, Jupiter and Saturn will be close by. To avoid some additional moonlight in the sky, starting the evening of the 4th, possibly watching after midnight, may prove most successful in spotting these meteors. But as Halley won't be back until 2061, we are at least able to be reminded of its passage through our part of the solar system. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Our topic today is the history and reemergence of race science. Bear with me while I get a little philosophical. Maybe you've heard people discussing, quote, social constructs at some point. A social construct is something that we, in a society, agree on to be a rule, even if it's not based on anything real. Baby boys wear blue and girls wear pink. That's a social construct. Cats are pets and pigs are food. That's another one. What's challenging about social constructs, like money or international borders, is that they often feel so real and shape our experiences so powerfully that it's hard to imagine that we made it up. But it's still important to understand how these constructs affect our lives. So today we're discussing the social construct of race, which for centuries has been used to justify atrocities like slavery, colonialism, segregation, and countless other injustices. Race science started as the claim that biological differences could be used to classify humans into categories. But as today's guest succinctly puts it, it was always nonsense. Angela Saini is a science journalist and author of Superior, The Return of Race Science. If you, like me, are dying to know how race science came to be, this is the episode for you. We talk about the popularity of race science through the years, the terrifying fact that racism exists in every level and aspect of society, including academia, and why, in the end, the reason race science has prevailed for so long is not actually about science, but politics. Angela, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Your most recent book, Superior, The Return of Race Science, takes an in-depth look at racist theories in science. And as the title suggests, this is something that has made somewhat of a comeback recently. But I'd like to start with the basics. What is race science and when did it emerge? Well, I think a lot of people imagine racial categories to have been eternal, that the way that we think about human difference now is the way that more or less people have always thought about it. And actually nothing could be further from the truth. The categories we use now in society, number one, they vary depending on the country that you're in, 
But the categories that you see, for example, being used in the US, these big kind of white, black, yellow, red, brown, um, originate from not that long ago. No, they're no more than a few hundred years old. And they were concocted around the time of the European Enlightenment by thinkers and naturalists who, as they were classifying the natural world, so flora and fauna, they looked at humans and said, can we classify humans in that same way? Now, these European thinkers, often they didn't have much exposure or understanding of how people elsewhere in the world lived or looked. Um, this wasn't a very scientific exercise in the way that we understand science to be done now. Um, so it was very arbitrary. There were some thinkers who thought there were a few races. There were others who thought there were hundreds or thousands of races. You can really divide people any way you want because, as we know now, of course, a human species is one race. We are one species. And although you can categorize people, for example, by height or weight or skin color or whatever you want, these are always fuzzy things. And the choice that you make with regards to classification is really a, a political and a social one or a cultural one. So these people were often informed by the social politics of their time. And of course, we're talking about upper class European male thinkers. And so the way that they thought about human difference was very much informed by the politics of colonialism, of slavery, of this idea that they themselves were superior to other groups of people, not just racially, but also in terms of gender and also in terms of class. So when we talk about race science, coming back to your question, or, or what is race, um, this is what it is. It is the exercise of trying to classify humanity in certain ways and the belief that there are meaningful differences between those categories once you have done that classification. And it was always nonsense. It was always arbitrary. <laughs> but of course, the way that these categories have been used for hundreds of years mean that they feel very real. They feel as real to us as other social constructs like money or democracy or you know, the idea of the nation state. They viscerally affect how we live, so they feel real, but race science itself was always bogus. It was always pseudoscientific. What does science actually tell us about race? Well, it depends on which period of time you're in. You know, if you were there 300 years ago, then science would have told you that races do exist. You can divide people into certain ways and that there's a hierarchy between them. Even in the 19th century, this was a very popular mainstream notion. There were lots of scientists, mainstream scientists. In fact, I would argue most European scientists and American scientists at that time believed that there was some basis to assume that humans could be divided up into groups and that there were kind of profound physical and psychological differences between the groups that we were talking about, that possibly we weren't even one species, that we were subbreeds or subspecies. And this was used as a justification for so many of the kind of atrocities of the 19th and 20th centuries, whether you look at the Holocaust, whether you look at any other kind of genocide, uh, slavery, colonialism, imperialism, apartheid, segregation, many of these were justified by these, what at that time were considered scientific arguments around racial difference. Of course, we know better now, but one of the questions I raise in Superior is how much better do we really know? Have we completely purged science of this idea that race is real or meaningful? And I would argue that we haven't. One thing that sort of adds to this confusion now is 
the way that we talk about DNA around these individual DNA tests? Well, I think DNA ancestry tests are an interesting case study here because I think more than any other type of technology in recent years, they have reinforced this idea that race must be real because if you're having these tests done and they come back and they tell you, you are so-and-so percent this and -and so-and-so percent that, how can they be analyzing your saliva, your DNA, and be telling you that? Then there must be some kind of genetic basis to to these racial categories. But I think people forget a number of things. Firstly, that what they are doing when they test your DNA is not an ancestry test as such. So they're not comparing your DNA to your ancestors or relatives of your ancestors. They are comparing it to other people who have had that test done. Now, we know that human variation is not random, of course. It's not the case that if I have a baby, I don't know what uh, you know, I have no idea what its skin color or eye color will be. I can, you know, you, our children look like us. We pass on traits through generations, of course. And historically, people have tended to live near their family. Then, of course, there is going to be some genetic, fuzzy genetic similarity between families and communities. It gets weaker and weaker the bigger you draw that circle. So when you're getting to your kind of second cousins or third cousins, your great-great-grandparents, the genetic link gets weaker and weaker. When you're talking about at the state level or nation level, there may be some kind of fuzzy genetic commonality here. But I have to assert very clearly that there is no gene that is present in all the members of one group and not in any other human being. There are no black genes. There are no white genes. There is no way that, for example, my DNA could be tested and they could say you are definitely of Indian origin. You talk in the book about Darwin in 1871, he published The Descent of Man. So he states that we have one common ancestor and we evolved from that slowly, like all other life. And you point out that that could have solved the race debate, but it didn't. Well, to be honest, we could have solved the race debate at any point if anyone had, you know, thought about the origins of these racial categories. They would have seen historically just how loose, meaningless and arbitrary they were from the beginning. What happened in the 19th century was that many scientists were very heavily invested in this idea that racial differences were real, not least because the politics of the time demanded that they did. You know, this was the height of colonialism, the height of slavery. Um, There were abolitionist movements, and I should say that Darwin was an abolitionist himself. In fact, his family, his broader family, were very active in the abolitionist movement. And yet Darwin himself couldn't abandon his belief that there was still something tangible about race and that some races were inferior to others, that certain groups of people, certain Uh, indigenous communities, for example, in parts of the world were doomed to die out because they were lower down the evolutionary ladder. I mean, this is the complexity of his legacy, I think, that we have to confront because I think we celebrate Darwin rightly, but at the same time, we have to understand the ideological frameworks within he was working, the political frameworks within which he was working and how racialized they really were and how racialized they were for so many scientists and thinkers at that time. This was part of the air that they breathed, these ideas, this uh, this belief that it was justified to keep slaves or it was justified for Europeans to colonize other countries that they considered less civilized. This was so entrenched an ideology 
it still remains there now, that even now in the 21st century, you still see people thinking in these terms. You're making me think about when you talk about the journal, the Mankind Quarterly, that sounds like it was a fringe publication, but it still continues to play a role in race science today. It's still around, is that right? That's right. So the Mankind Quarterly, for those who aren't aware of it, is a journal that was founded in the 1960s by a small group of academics and people on the margins of mainstream academia as well, who were not on board with the consensus around this idea that race was a social construct. So in the 1950s, UNESCO put out a series of statements affirming once and for all that race was a social construct. And by and large, most people were on board with this, but there were a small group of scientists who weren't, including some very mainstream scientists who weren't convinced that we were one species, for instance, that we all evolved together. There were some who thought that we evolved separately to have very different traits. And some of these scientists on the very fringes who were still committed, for example, to maintaining segregation in the United States, who saw a problem with racial mixing, what they termed at the time miscegenation. So this idea that different racial groups shouldn't be having children together because those children will be somehow genetically flawed in some way. And they got together and set up their own journal because, you know, mainstream journals wouldn't publish this kind of nonsense anymore. And that journal was called the Mankind Quarterly. Racists aren't just those kind of ignorant thugs in the street. There are racists at every single level of society, and that includes academia. There are white supremacists within academia. And what the Mankind Quarterly aimed to do was give voice to those deeply racist elements within academia and outside academia, people on the fringes. And I have to say that its contributors these days tend to be on those very fringes. That I mean, I don't think there are any reputable academics who still write for that publication. But I should say that's only very recently. There have been academics who have written for it at top universities around the world. I think an example that will really resonate with people is the Neanderthal mm. makeover example. So can you talk about that a little bit? I read a wonderful book by Billy Griffiths, I think it's called Deep Time, and it really looks at the history of archaeology within Australia. And what you see when you look at that history is how racist it is. There, it was informed a lot by, again, the politics of that time, the 19th and 20th century politics, this belief that they were entering this terra nullius, this empty land, that the people who already lived there, the Aboriginal Australians, were doomed to die out, that they belonged to some kind of less evolved race, that they were lower down the evolutionary ladder. And what I also noticed over the last 10 years or so is there's been a lot of research done into Neanderthals and their connections to modern day humans. So for a long time, there was this belief that you know, we've known for a very long time about the existence of Neanderthals and there was this belief that we did not mate with them. You know, this was a separate species that died out, that went extinct uh, and we survived for some reason. And the fact of them dying out was used, you know, we use it in popular culture to describe someone stupid. You know, we use the word Neanderthal to describe someone who is you know, an oafish male. That, you know, we use the word Neanderthal. And in fact, if you go to your dictionary, that, that definition is still there. But when Neanderthal bones was first discovered in Europe in, I think it's the end of the 19th century, 
One of the very first things scientists did was compare them to the bones of Aboriginal Australians, living Aboriginal Australians. And this was because, like I said, there was this belief that they were both kind of lower down the evolutionary scale, that they were both doomed to die out. That these were kind of different breeds of people that were doomed to die out. And that belief, of course, we have to remember, was the same one that drove racism in Australia, deep racism in Australia. One of the very first pieces of legislation to pass in Australia under its colonial government was the White Australia policy, which essentially tried to breed the colour out of Australians. It was cultural and physical genocide almost. It really destroyed living communities. And I interviewed one woman in Australia who has Aboriginal Australian ancestry, whose family were a product of this system. And it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely horrific to read and hear from living people about the absolutely despicable ways in which they were treated. I think Australia and Australians are still coming to terms with that, trying to atone and reckon with that devastating legacy. But we have to remember that at that time, science was supporting this idea. Science was supporting this idea that it was legitimate almost to have a group of people, a community, a culture die out under this belief that European civilization was superior. European people were biologically superior to these people. Now, let's fast forward to the 21st century. Over the last 10, 20 years, it's become clear that Neanderthals did mate with modern humans. In fact, many of us alive today have a small proportion of Neanderthal DNA, if you want to think of it that way. So, you know, our very, very distant ancestors bred with Neanderthals. And in fact, it started to become clear that it was Europeans that might have the largest proportion of this Neanderthal <laughs> DNA in them. And no scientist, no living scientist of the last 20, 30 years would ever suggest that this meant that they changed the way they thought about Neanderthals. But when you look at scientific papers and when you look at popular culture and the phrases that they use to describe Neanderthals, it's remarkable how they changed in that time. When it became clear that Europeans had this close connection to Neanderthals, then suddenly people started talking about Neanderthals as being human, just like us. This was one New York Times essay. They felt like us. They didn't die out because they were stupid. They died out for some other unfortunate reason. They, they suffered the same diseases. You know, drawing them into the human circle, forgetting that in the 19th century, they were used as a tool to push living human beings, Aboriginal Australians, out of the human circle. What we need to be careful of is when we change the language that we're not just using euphemisms, that we're not just doing the same thing but using different language to describe it. There's a wonderful academic called Lisa Gannett who writes about statistical racism, this idea that population geneticists in changing their language around race, not using the word race anymore but using the word population, for instance, are actually just, in a way, obscuring what they're actually doing, you know, which to an outside observer like me as a journalist, feels a lot like race science sometimes. <laughs> you know, it really does, but they use different language around it. And they won't, you know, very assiduously avoid use of the word race or racial differences, but essentially doing almost exactly the same thing. And then you have to wonder, then what are you doing? If it's not race science, but it looks exactly like race science, then what is it? And that's where I think we have to be careful. This isn't just about language. This is fundamentally about how we think about human difference, how we think about the species and the ways in which we divide up people. The fact that we divide people up at all 
Why do we even do that? And I think this is where we need to go back to because the project of dividing up people was this European Enlightenment project. It was part of that political belief that human differences went that far. So that's not to say that human variation shouldn't be studied. All I'm saying is that we need to think carefully about the ways in which we study it. It can't be as superficial as just changing the language. It has to be fundamental, I think. That was Angela Saini talking about her recent book, Superior, The Return of Race Science. That was on a podcast recently released by the Union of Concerned Scientists. The host of this podcast was Colleen McDonald, and it was originally aired on October 6, 2020. We want to thank Colleen and the technical crew at Union of Concerned Scientists for permission to air this episode, which is in their series called Got Science? We'll post a link to the full podcast on our page at forwardradio.org and on our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk The Weekend Science. That's us. And thanks also to Professor Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College for filling us in on the night sky again this month. Speaking for Scott and everyone else on the Bench Talk The Weekend Science team, thank you and see you next week.